On 6 August 1945, a U.S. Army Air Corps B-29 Superfortress, nicknamed Enola Gay, dropped the world's first nuclear bomb on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. Three days later, another B-29 named Box Car dropped another atom bomb on the city of Nagasaki. The devastation caused by these two devices was so great, Japanese Emperor Hirohito made his first radio address on 15 August 1945 to tell his subjects the Empire of Japan would unconditionally surrender to the Allied powers and thus end World War II, the bloodiest contest in the history of humankind. I'm Oliver North, and this War Stories podcast, you'll hear the story of how the so-called atomic bomb came to be. It was a worldwide race involving scientists, soldiers, and spies, and it cost a staggering $2 billion, yet it was accomplished in just a thousand days. Stay with us, and you'll hear the voices of remarkable Americans who engaged in theoretical science, international intrigue, deception, and espionage to build a weapon so lethal, just one of them could kill millions of people. There's U.S. Army Colonel Boris Pash, a counterintelligence officer who feared some of those working on the Manhattan Project were Soviet spies. And then there was Dr. Samuel Goldsmith and Team Alsos, a top-secret Allied task force with a mission of snatching German scientists before the Soviets could capture them. You'll also meet veterans Robert Furman and Eddie Dolan as they trek through Europe, leaving no stone unturned, searching for hidden secrets of Hitler's nuclear program in a difficult and often dangerous mission. You'll also hear from a German scientist whose father was kidnapped by the Soviets and forced to work under brutal conditions for over a decade. Come along as War Stories takes you on a journey through Hitler's Germany and meet the men behind the secret race for the atomic bomb. If you're hiring, you need to know where to post your job to find the best candidates. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter's been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com strive. That's ZipRecruiter.com strive. One more time, get it right. ZipRecruiter.com strive. You're looking at the mountain that once hid the secrets of the Third Reich's nuclear program. I'm Oliver North. This is War Stories. We're at the Adam Keller Museum in Hagerlock, Germany. During the latter days of World War II, this cave hid Germany's most advanced nuclear reactor, the target of a top-secret Allied task force. By April of 1945, scientists at Los Alamos were just weeks away from testing the world's first atomic bomb. As the Nazi war machine crumbled, German scientists were on the run. Everyone wanted to know what they knew, especially the Soviets. The stakes couldn't have been higher. Tonight, 
you'll meet the men behind the secret race for the atomic bomb. first whack was pretty good, and the second whack was also very good. I think it's still difficult for people to imagine that a little ball the size of a grapefruit could blow up a city. How does that happen? Particle physics, the idea that massive amounts of energy could be created from a single source of matter. In the early part of the 20th century, the race to discover the secret of the atom was on. Nuclear physics was a new science. Richard Rhodes is the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Making of the Atomic Bomb. Because there was the possibility, as everyone understood, of potentially releasing a huge new source of energy, it was a very exciting field to work in. The holy grail of atomic physics was found in Nazi Germany in 1938. It's late December, just before Christmas, in Berlin at an institute called the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Chemistry. Hitler's Nazi war machine was on the rise. German troops had annexed Austria in the Sudetenland. And a German radio chemist of great ability, Otto Hahn, working with Fritz Strassmann, are bombarding a solution of uranium nitrate with neutrons. And they're getting stuff out of the solution that shouldn't be there. And it slowly dawns on them that the only way it could be there is that they split the uranium atom. One of Otto Hahn's young assistants was Hans Born. War stories caught up with his son, Dr. Eberhard Born, in Munich. This is a remarkable event. The first time the atom is split is here in Germany. That's true. Uh, it's a matter of fact that the splitting itself what was never observed. Uh, they didn't know that there was a fission. It was this woman, physicist Lisa Meitner, who confirmed the discovery. She was an Austrian Jew who fled Nazi Germany in 1938. The splitting of the atom made news with the help of Paul Rosbod, the man who helped Meitner escape. And Paul Rosbod, as the senior scientific editor in Germany, rushed the Hahn and Strassmann paper into print. Within a week of that journal's arrival around the world, every physicist who has any sense at all of what this is about has figured out that this means you could build a bomb. The atomic genie was out of the bottle. Military labs in the United States, France, England, and Japan buzzed with nuclear research. The same was true in Stalin's Soviet Union. Scientists there spent most of their time thinking about which country could build a bomb first. For instance, Georgi Florov, who was one of the leading Soviet physicists, believed that uh, if anybody would have built a bomb, he would thought that it wouldn't be Britain or the United States, but it would have been Germany. Hitler wasn't so sure. Adolf Hitler was an uneducated, or I should perhaps say self-educated man. So when he heard about the possibility of a big new bomb with nuclear energy, he laughed and said, maybe the lab scientists will blow up the world. Despite Hitler's reservations, the German war office set up a top secret uranium project in Berlin. And by the summer of 1939, the Third Reich banned the export of uranium, raising eyebrows in America. Well, our concern was what were the Germans up to? At the time, Harold Agnew was a young physics student and a future member of the Manhattan Project. Because the center for all this research had been in Germany, this was the region of expertise in nuclear physics, quantum mechanics. You had Heisenberg and... White soccer and the whole gang. 
Karl von Weizsäcker was the son of the German Undersecretary of State. In 1939, he was experimenting with uranium at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. His colleague, Werner Heisenberg, was the Third Reich's top physicist. Unlike Albert Einstein and most of Germany's top scientists, Heisenberg refused to leave the fatherland. He would lead the Nazis' nuclear program. Werner Heisenberg was a brilliant young German, bushy red hair, lots of energy. He was a skier and a mountain climber, but also a loyal German. Albert Einstein was worried about the brilliant but now dangerous Heisenberg. On August 2, 1939, Einstein wrote this urgent letter to President Roosevelt, warning of the dangers of a Nazi nuclear bomb. That letter got things maybe tweaked, but not really started. It, it devolved to a committee that was run by a scientist from the Department of Agriculture who happened to be uh, real paranoid about secrecy, and the word just didn't get around. One month after the letter was sent, Hitler's tanks rolled into Poland. Europe was at war. By 1940, as bombs rained down on Britain, Europe's leading scientists, including many former Germans, were called together by the British War Office. Their mission? To hammer out a plan to build a nuclear bomb to use against Germany. But how much uranium would it take? They had thought vaguely that it might be several tons. But when they really did the numbers more carefully, it ended up looking like it might be no more than a couple pounds. In 1941, the blueprint to the bomb, called the Maud Report, was given to FDR's science advisor, Vannevar Bush, who turned it over to Vice President Henry Wallace. And it went no further, as science took a backseat to America's preparations for war. A vast amount of things needed to be done. Robert Stan Norris is the author of the book Racing for the Bomb. The size of the army between the wars was about 135,000, minuscule, and it was about 16th or 17th in the world. So all of these preparations had to be made about uh, training, and uh, they had to be supplied. General George Marshall tapped Colonel Leslie Groves, a talented engineer and West Point graduate, to build the foundation on which a rapidly growing military could deploy. Huge, gigantic projects, uh, military uh, training camps, uh, munition plants, depots, airfields, factories, and Groves built a, a good share of them. Uh, one task that he had that's very well known is that he built the Pentagon. Uh, this he accomplished in about 16 months. Meanwhile, the American nuclear research effort was stuck in the lab. We were all essentially new, learning a new part of science, which uh, really none of us had known very much about. By comparison, Heisenberg's uranium project had nearly 200 scientists working full speed. The Nazis had a three-year head start over the Allies. By December 1941, secret plans for an atomic bomb project were shown to FDR. And in fact, the crucial meeting was held the morning before Pearl Harbor. So the timing was exquisite in a way. The race was on. Roosevelt and Churchill wanted the bomb, and the American military was ordered to build it. The job would take a 1,000 days and one tough general. Up next, the man for the job, General Leslie Groves. By September 1942, millions of American soldiers were fighting on two fronts as war raged in Europe and the Pacific. 
Back in the States, 47-year-old Colonel Leslie Groves of the Army Corps of Engineers was putting the finishing touches on more than 100 military construction projects. He was a man of great action. One of Colonel Groves' smart young men was Lieutenant Bob Furman, a 27-year-old engineer fresh out of Princeton's ROTC program. Furman was working for Groves on the Pentagon project. When the Pentagon was about finished, I was assigned directly to work with, with him on a special assignment that he dreamed up. That special assignment is called? The Manhattan District. Did you know anything about it? No. The Manhattan District was the code name for a top secret project that Groves had known about for months. Did he say, Bob, I want you to help me build an atomic bomb? How did he put it? No, uh, this was all, atomic science was all new to him, and he was quite surprised when he found out that people my age had already been taught quite a bit about the nuclear structure. I, I became the a liaison between the military and the scientific world. As the Manhattan Project got off the ground, Groves was given far-reaching powers. His $2.5 billion budget, that would be close to $40 billion today, was hidden from congressional review and from the eyes of then-Senator Harry Truman. Who was investigating fraud and ineptness everywhere, but got by him too. At Roosevelt's request, Groves was promoted to Brigadier General. He was now the country's top nuclear engineer. Well, there were uh, two ingredients that were going to be needed for the bomb. Uh, either this highly enriched uranium, which had to be separated, or some new material that was created in a reactor. And that new material, of course, is plutonium. The uranium enrichment facilities were located in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Using wartime powers, Groves bought 54,000 acres of land. A month or two later, he went out to uh, the state of Washington and purchased half a million acres. And this is where the reactors were going to be built. Groves was two steps ahead of the science. He was banking on a breakthrough experiment, which was about to take place in an empty squash court at the University of Chicago. I was just standing up on the balcony where spectators would stand. 21-year-old Harold Agnew was there. So we had a recorder. It was a mechanical recorder. We call them scalers, uh, measuring the activity. On that December 2nd, 1942, Dr. Enrico Fermi, a refugee from fascist Italy, was attempting man's first controlled release of atomic energy. Fermi's team built a nuclear reactor an elaborate system which weaved together uranium metal and oxide with graphite blocks. The graphite was very heavy, it was slippery, it was dirty. And if you aren't careful, you really got your fingers smashed, sliding these things together. Other lab assistants held control rods and waited for Fermi's instructions. And Fermi would say, okay, George, pull it out another couple of centimeters. And he kept doing this, and the count kept going up and going up and going up. And it was obvious the thing had gone critical. Critical means a nuclear reaction had taken place. In this case, a tiny amount of plutonium had been created. Groves uh, was a stickler for uh, secrecy and uh, security. Groves decided to impose a system of uh, what's called compartmentalization. The chemists couldn't talk to the physicists. Or the, if you were in a group, you couldn't talk to other people about what you were doing, which was just nonsense because we needed ideas. 
So Groves began to look for someone to assemble all of the country's leading nuclear scientists for work on the atomic bomb. At UC Berkeley, he found brilliant 38-year-old Dr. J. Robert Oppenheimer. Why Oppenheimer for the laboratory? He could explain things to Groves, basically. I mean, he was Groves' idiot savant. But Oppenheimer had political baggage. His wife was a communist, his brother was a communist, and his uh, sister-in-law were a communist, and he hung out with them. So Groves had Oppenheimer followed. In the San Francisco office, he had a person named Boris Pash. And it was Pash who began to investigate uh, Oppenheimer's background. The tenacious 42-year-old Boris Pash was born in the United States, but had grown up in Russia. He'd fought against the communists during the Bolshevik Revolution. By 1942, he was chief of counterintelligence at the Presidio in San Francisco. War Stories obtained a copy of his August 26, 1943 interrogation of Dr. Oppenheimer. I think that a lot of very brilliant and thoughtful people have seen something in the communist movement and that they maybe belong there. Maybe it is a good thing for the country. And Pash was quite uh, adamant that this was not the man for the job. Pash concluded that Oppenheimer was, quote, potentially dangerous. And uh, Groves uh, just uh, overruled uh, all of this and uh, was not convinced that uh, any of this really mattered when it came to the ability to, to build the bomb. Still suspect, Oppenheimer and his team of scientists got to work on the grounds of a former school in Los Alamos, New Mexico. They would build America's first atomic bomb. Tanks like these were used to hold heavy water an essential ingredient in controlling a nuclear reaction. By 1940, the Germans were acquiring tons of it. How did the Allies know? A spy named the Griffin told them. That's next on War Stories. As far back as 1939, Hitler warned of a secret weapon that would be impossible to stop. Was it a nuclear bomb? The information was sketchy at best. By the time America entered the war, what did we know or think we knew about Hitler's nuclear program? We knew where their institutions were in Berlin and other universities. And we knew that certain prime individual scientists would have to be involved if they did have a project. And that's about all we knew. But if the Americans didn't know, then who did? They went to the British. Arnold Kramish worked on the Manhattan Project and says the British had received a number of reports from a top-secret spy in Germany. They were sufficient enough for the British to conclude long before the Americans concluded that the German atomic bomb program was going nowhere. Kramer says the source of much of this information was Paul Rosbud. He was the man who helped physicist Lisa Meitner flee Germany. And he was also spying for the British, codenamed the Griffin. Paul Rosbud knew all of the top scientists, and he didn't want Hitler to get that horrible weapon before the rest of the world got it. The Oslo report has sometimes been described as the most important scientific intelligence report of World War II. 
1939, this top-secret report was delivered literally to the doorstep of the British Embassy in Oslo, Norway. It was so detailed, many people thought it was a fake. But there was always a mystery as to how it got there. It was originated by Paul Rosbaud. Rosbaud's report described German flying bombs and jet aircraft. It listed an obscure German city on the Baltic coast called Pinamunda, where hundreds of Germany's top scientists and engineers were going full throttle on Hitler's secret rocket program. Adolf Hitler loved rockets. You could see a rocket. It was exciting. And the atomic bomb, Hitler never really, I think, got terribly interested in. But with the support of Albert Speer, the Third Reich's nuclear program marched ahead. Peaceful-looking German merchant ships like these had sneaked inside Norway's neutral waterway. By the afternoon of April 9th, the Germans were in complete control. Nazi troops occupied Norway and seized a heavy water plant at Weimark. German scientists were ecstatic, and so was the spy in their midst, the Griffin. So we knew that if someone was interested in large quantities of heavy water, the only possible reason would be that they wanted to build a nuclear reactor. Heavy water is used as a moderator in nuclear reactors to sustain the chain reaction. So to slow down their work, we first sent in a group of British commandos. They damaged it. When the Germans quickly rebuilt the plant, uh, we sent in a bomber fleet and just bombed it. Rosbaud and British intelligence devised something called the Code of Codes. The British spy Rosbaud was also working for the Germans and used scientific journals to convey his messages. It was really quite simple. You would have to know that you should look at page 32, for example, line 7, word 10, and couple that with page 45, line 18, and you could get the coded message. The BBC would embed a special code in its nightly broadcast to let Rosbud know if his information had been received. And it would say, for example, the house has three windows on the second floor. That might mean that your message was received. But the Brits kept the griffin to themselves. Because the British did not trust the Americans in intelligence matters, we did not receive the Rosbaud information until just before the June 1944 invasion. D-Day was approaching and General Groves was desperate to know if the Germans had been able to build their own atomic bomb. That's next on War Stories. By late 1943, top-secret nuclear facilities were ramping up in Oak Ridge, Tennessee and Hanford, Washington, and the tide of war in Europe was turning. 597 RAF bombers blasted the Pinamunda rocket research facilities. American bombs rained down on U-boat construction yards. And a prime target in the nuclear arms race was in the crosshairs of Allied bombardiers. The Kaiser Wilhelm Institute was uh, Heisenberg's institute, and uh, if you want to slow up or stop, 
the German bomb program, uh, the best thing to do is to call out the 8th Army to uh, send the bombers over and, and destroy it. On the Eastern Front, as Hitler's forces retreated from the Soviet Army, Heisenberg's nuclear team decided to cut and run. They didn't want to be captured by the Russians. They understood that if they had to go somewhere, they'd better go west, not east. This is the beautiful town of Heigerlach, Germany. Dr. Michael Thorwart is the assistant director of the Adam Keller Museum. Michael, tell me, what was this tunnel? This cave is a former beer cellar, which was converted into a scientific laboratory in 1944, in fall, when the scientists moved from Berlin to Heigerloch. The Germans during the war knew that we were working on the bomb. As war stories first reported, Eric Gimpel, a German spy known as Agent 146, tried in vain to locate the Manhattan Project. Did you have lists of names of people to meet in the United States? Only one contact. He gave me some information that the Atom Project was worked on different uh, places. The Massachusetts Institute was working on heavy water. And some others they were working on graphite. And then I got information that large amounts of uranium were imported from Canada. But no secrets on how to build an atomic bomb? No, no, no. They didn't think anybody could possibly build it in any short period of time. In fact, there was a kind of arrogance about their attitude, which was, well, we can't do it. The Americans can't do it. But if the Allies planned on dropping the bomb on Germany, General Groves needed to speed things up. To keep pace with production, Groves needed more uranium. There was 1,200 tons of high-grade Belgian uranium ore in Belgium that the Germans confiscated and took back to Germany. If General Groves could get his hands on that ore, then he would know that the Germans could not build a bomb. Groves needed boots on the ground in Germany. He got them on June 6, 1944. Now send a mission in with our armies to find out about the German program, confiscate the ore if we could find it, and uh, steal the German scientists so that the Russians didn't get them. So they put together an organization which they named Alsos. Alsos uh, comes from uh, a Greek mythology, and of course it means groves. Groves picked a two-man team to lead the Alsos mission. Colonel Boris Pash with a no-nonsense tactical approach, and a co-commander, Dr. Samuel Gutschmidt, a level-headed scientist. Gutschmidt had escaped Nazi Germany, but his parents had been arrested and had been put to death at Auschwitz. And he wanted to confront the likes of Werner Heisenberg and say, how could you work with these monsters? What was he like? Very friendly, very intelligent, good organizer. See, he was a good choice because he knew the German scientists. And he spoke several languages. They got along. Uh, Dr. Godsmith, I say, they got along pretty good. To be chosen to command uh, this task force was uh, uh, a great honor for him. Gladys Pash shared memories of her husband with war stories. They had to be done in a hurry. And Colonel was the one to get the job done. We gave them a list of about 40 or 45 German scientists that we knew were still in Germany that had been trained in nuclear physics. 
One of the first targets was the laboratory of French physicist Joliot-Curie, rumored to be working with the Nazis. 25 August 1944, Paris was about to be liberated. French troops were supposed to be the first to re-enter the city. Groves had insisted that the, the Alsace mission stay behind the advancing army, mostly because they didn't want them captured. But they were a little more hot dog than that. As this film shows, Colonel Pash is driving like a madman through sniper fire. He jumped the gun and was one of the first Americans to enter Paris. Naturally, the crowds were delighted to see him, and, and they, they were just all over his jeep. But when they entered, he said, stop this jeep. I'm walking into Paris. And he walked in. He was the first one there. Pash had no time to celebrate. He raced through the streets to find Curie's lab, jumped out of his Jeep, and confronted the scientist with these words. I'm Colonel Pash, and I'm, I'm here. <laughs> and I'm going to take this building <laughs> for my headquarters. As for his partner, Gudschmidt, he was stuck for two days in the tremendous celebration of liberation. Finally, the quiet scientist stole a Jeep to catch up with Pash and interrogated Curie. We didn't get a great deal out of that. There's just one more confirmation that at least they weren't included in any project. But Curie did point the Alsos team to a nest of scientists holed up in another city, 300 miles east of Paris. Strasbourg. Yeah, the turning point. Colonel Boris Pash hits the jackpot. That's next on War Stories. After the interrogation of Dr. Joliot Curie, the Alsos team under Goldschmidt and Pash desperately looked for clues that would lead them to Hitler's nuclear scientists and the missing 1,200 tons of uranium. We had to wait long enough for the Germans to recede, to go north. Suddenly, Bob Furman received a tip to investigate some mysterious barrels in a warehouse in Uhlen, just outside of Antwerp, Belgium. We got there just as soon as we could. And... Uh, we were moving very fast. Someone in the German bureaucracy had thought that this was used for paints. High-grade uranium ore is a very bright yellow, yellow cake. 70 tons of the missing yellow cake were now in Allied hands, but moving it was a challenge. The Army, General Smith, got us some airplanes. We must have had 20 of them, and we transported all this ore over to Britain. But where was the rest of the missing uranium? Pash and Gutschmidt learned that 1,000 tons had been taken into Germany in 1940, and another 31 tons were sitting under the noses of the Free French in Toulouse. Now the French people were a little leery of us. Sergeant Eddie Dolan was a driver with the elite Red Ball Express. They didn't think we had the right to come in and take over, actually. The French commander asked Colonel Pash for his paperwork. Pash pointed to the mounted machine guns. He had a way about him. Uh, he was small in stature, and he talked a real good fight. But we took the 70 drums and put them on a ship and sent them back to the United States. When the uranium arrived in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, it was made part of America's first atomic bomb, nicknamed Little Boy. I was driving, and he finally said to me, uh, let me drive. So then I knew how he wanted me to drive. He was reckless. 
Pash was in a hurry to get to Strasbourg and corral Germany's atomic scientists. The captured Dr. Curie had told the ALSOS team that's where Karl von Weizsäcker and his colleagues were doing nuclear research. There were so many of them that uh, we had to take. The team arrested seven scientists. Karl von Weizsäcker escaped, but he left his top-secret research behind, a jackpot for Goodsmith and Pash. They now had confirmation that Hitler's scientists did not have the bomb. Even when you got to Strasbourg, were you surprised that they hadn't gone further than they had? We just confirmed what we thought was the situation. We would have been greatly surprised if we had found out that they had a project, put it that way. At last, Groves is convinced that there isn't a German bomb program. The Strasbourg information told the Americans the locations of the remaining research facilities and key personnel. Now the mission was to get the rest of the uranium and beat the Soviets to the scientists. The Russians were advancing rapidly on Berlin. So if there was any material or people or anything they needed that was going to be on the Russian side of that line, they had a very short time to get it. General Groves was already starting to fight the Cold War, even though the Russians had been our allies. December 1944, as Hitler's Wehrmacht made one last attempt to block the advancing allies in the Battle of the Bulge, Colonel Pash made a final sprint to beat the Soviets. Next stop, Germany. And then I knew that something big had to be going on. Pash and Gudschmidt finally arrested Karl von Weizsäcker at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute here in this building in Heckingen. But the Fuhrer's top scientist, Werner Heisenberg, was still at large. As the Russians closed in on Berlin, then six-year-old Eberhard Born and his scientist father Hans were in hiding. Do you have any recollections as a young boy of what those bombing raids were like? I remember we had to move to the cellar every night. What was your father doing during those final months of the war? I only knew that he is a chemist, and that's all. The generation of my parents, they didn't tell us anything, especially about work. No information given. 400 miles away, Colonel Pash, Eddie Dolan, and Dr. Goodschmidt nipped at the heels of the missing scientists. They ended up here in this former beer cellar in the picturesque town of Hagerlock. In Hagerlock, and in between the two houses was a little doorway. Here, nestled in this cave, was this German nuclear reactor, and buried nearby, Heisenberg's stash of uranium. So this was, for the ALSOS mission, basically very good news because they could confirm this nuclear reactor was, first of all, never critical, and second, it had absolutely no use for the creation of an atomic bomb. Why did they hide those blocks away from here if this was a benign experiment? They didn't know what the Allies and what the ALSOS mission knew about their project, so they wanted to be as much as possible on the safe side. If they could have built a bomb, would they have? I would say no. The head of all the project was Heisenberg, and to my opinion, he definitely would have not built a bomb. While the team dug up the stash, Werner Heisenberg narrowly escaped Colonel Pasch's arrival. He's asking people, where, uh, where does uh, Professor Heisenberg live? And, oh, he lives up there. Professor Heisenberg had pedaled his bicycle more than 200 miles through the Alps to this remote mountain cabin, hoping to avoid capture but he couldn't evade the tenacious Boris Pash. 
literally Pesh uh, just goes up to the, to the front door and there's uh, Heisenberg on the balcony waiting for him. Heisenberg surrendered without a fight. The Alsos mission was finally over. Ten major German scientists had been captured, including Otto Hahn. But these two, Nicholas Riel and Hans Born, ended up in Soviet hands. When we come back, the Soviet army kidnaps German scientists literally off the streets. That's next on War Stories. Shortly after Hitler's suicide in April 45, the war in Europe was finally over. Berlin lay in ruins. The Red Army let loose on a nation vanquished, seeking revenge for the war's destruction. Stalin's trophy brigades nabbed everything in sight, especially coveted were German scientists for work on the Soviet nuclear program. Two of them were Nicholas Riel and Hans Born. Did your father and, and Riel work together? They communicated very much. They met every week, so uh, one can even say they worked together in this way. Germans came very handy in the chemistry areas, the enrichment of isotopes. Pavel Olenikov is a scholar of Soviet nuclear history. They were moved to the Soviet Union and brought to facilities and said, this is where you will live and this is where you will continue research. In the autumn of 1945, they take your father. Did you know what had happened to him at that No, no, yeah. nobody knew. Eberhardt's father, Hans, was one of the 200 scientists forced to live and work in the Soviet Union. It was very hard for my mother, and she gets ill of that, and she went to the hospital for about one or two months even. She eventually gets a letter. And she knew that he was in Moscow, he was healthy, and he begged uh, that the family uh, comes also to, to Moscow. I remember we went by plane, and it was first flight of my life, <laughs> of course. This is the secret closed city of Electrostal where Eberhardt's father worked for a year and a half. Some of the German scientists never adjusted to this harsh life. Mr. Rive decided not to work anymore. He said he wants to go home. He doesn't want to work here anymore. The Russians came, took him, and shot him. With the help of Colonel Pash, Samuel Goodschmidt and the Alsos team, General Groves and Robert Oppenheimer accomplished a feat that changed the world forever. This film from the Trinity test on 16 July 1945 prompted Oppenheimer to recall, We knew the world would not be the same. A few people laughed, a few people cried. Meanwhile, the uranium bomb Little Boy was on its way to the Pacific, and Bob Furman was carrying it. The atomic bomb. I was given the mission of taking half of the first bomb to Tinian, where it would be assembled with the other half. I went down to Los Alamos and picked up one half of this first atomic bomb, the one that landed in Hiroshima. How big is this ball? Well, the ball is about the size of a duck pin ball, four inches 
diameter, and it's handed to me in a lead bucket. At 8.15 a.m. on 6 August 1945, Little Boy exploded over Hiroshima. These are the only pictures that exist of the mushroom cloud over Hiroshima, taken by 24-year-old Harold Agnew. I didn't get to take a picture till we were running away from the, the bomb target. But I did get at least a picture, black and white, showing this cloud coming up and everything. Three days later, Nagasaki was hit by the plutonium bomb, nicknamed Fat Man. This had been an objective since Pearl Harbor's defeat, both Germany and Japan. And to think of what might have happened if we actually had been so foolish as to actually try to land on the main islands of Japan, the slaughter on both sides and the cost and material and personnel would have been tremendous. Do you remember hearing about the first bomb being dropped in Japan? The people um, in the surrounding of my father were all shocked of the fact that a nuclear bomb really exploded and that people really uh, used it. Hiroshima was a, a mighty shock to Stalin and he realized at that point that um, uh, it's time for a Russian crash program and uh, from August 45 on, uh, the Russians mobilize themselves uh, to build a bomb in exactly four years uh, with help from uh, this espionage activity. Your father is obviously brought there because they think he can be helpful to them in yes. building a bomb. No, not the bomb. I would say he, will, he was working on separation of the fission products. And this is a real problem of obtaining plutonium. The ambition to get the atomic bomb in the Soviet Union was immense. Veterans of the Soviet intelligence like to say that they delivered the bomb for the Soviet atomic program, whereas the Soviet atomic scientists like to deny this and tell, no, we developed it on our own, but it was the political pressure that failure was unacceptable, and this is why we had to build it uh, fallen American blueprints. The Soviets tested their first atomic bomb in August 1949. Until then, the U.S. believed it had a monopoly on nuclear weapons. We now know we did not. Don't go away. There's more war stories just ahead. The race to build the atomic bomb involves scientists, soldiers, and spies. It cost $2 billion, was accomplished in a 1,000 days, and ended mankind's bloodiest conflict. For all those who worked on the Manhattan Project and those who served in the Alsos missions, it was difficult and sometimes downright dangerous. Theirs is a war story that deserves to be told. I'm Oliver North. Good night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.